episode of The Meaning of Health. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're here today with a bit of a different episode to some of the ones that we've done so far, aren't we, Courtney? Yeah, that's right. Pretty different. Yeah, so it's actually a bit more lighthearted, this one, but it also does have a bit of a serious side, if you think about it. That's right. So the whole idea of this podcast is to look at the 29th first annual Ignoble Prize Awards, and uh, Craig and I have both chosen some studies that have won this very prestigious award. Um, and the whole idea behind it is to honour the achievements that make people laugh and then make them think. So we're going to go through a couple of the people and the studies who've won uh, the, this particular award. But first, we should probably talk a little bit about the history of this award. Yeah. So where, whereabouts do these awards happen each year? So they happen. Uh, every September uh, in the Harvard Sanders Theatre, so in Harvard University. Um, And essentially what happens is everyone gathers in this theatre and the winners come to accept their award and they have 30 seconds to explain their research. Okay. That sounds interesting. So 30 seconds isn't a lot of time for something that they've possibly been working on for several years or yeah, decades. Yeah, I, I don't think um, any any conference or anything would give you 30 seconds to talk about your research, even if it's just one paper. So most people would get at least a minute at a conference. Um, but yeah, 30 seconds because you need to be able to explain your science succinctly. Okay. <laughs> and do we know roughly how many awards are given out each year and, wh- and whether they're for the same thing each time or does it vary? So it it varies. There's a a number of different awards that are given out. So there's different areas like medicine, public health, nutrition, um, or any area that they decide is noteworthy for that year. So there's some weird ones that come out. So there are some peace prizes as well within science research. Um, So they kind of just choose whatever they want in reality. Yeah. Interesting. So it's just up to the organisers what takes their fancy in a given year. Okay. Well... Uh, so is, was there anything particular about the, this year's group of awards that you noticed or was it just pretty, pretty standard? Uh, so, so this year, the reason why I kind of thought this might be a good podcast topic is because it did come up on my like, Twitter feed and I was like, hey, you know, this is actually really interesting. So I don't quite remember any of the ones from this year in particular, but it did, made me, did make me click the link and look through it and it kind of sparked some curiousness and interest into what they were actually looking at and it's also pretty hilarious as well so yeah so i had a quick scan of some of the list and some of the previous awards and some from this year and the topics are pretty like on the surface pretty funny aren't they that's right talking about cat ownership and that sort of thing and how that affects your health and whatnot but there is actually some science behind um, what the researchers are doing isn't there exactly so uh for example there was one that i was looking at where this uh, Japanese guy recorded every single meal for 34 years, which is crazy. But it also gives you some incredibly fascinating nutritional uh, information, particularly about like the Japanese diet and what they eat. So yeah, it's really something that is silly or stupid or funny, but when you get to the science behind it, it makes you think. Okay, interesting. Well, without further ado, uh, we both have selected a couple of awards to, to, to talk about from different years. 
uh, from different categories. Um, did you want to start with, with one of the ones you've selected? Yeah, so I was looking through the list of winners and I, I found one specific to public health that really caught my eye for a number of reasons, mainly because I've followed this rule before as much as I don't want to admit it. I've said it to other people. And the winner of the Public Health Prize for 2004 was Gillian Clark. And she was investigating the scientific validity behind the five second rule. And basically the five second rule, if you don't know, is when you drop a piece of food on the floor and you go, ah, good enough, I'll probably eat it anyway. It's only been on the floor for five seconds, it's fine. Uh, so, she actually decided to investigate this, uh, this rule that we've somehow created to see whether it is actually true or not. Sounds very interesting. <laughs> she, yeah, it is super interesting. Um, and the thing that makes it even more interesting is that I tried to look up Gillian Clark and she was a high school student when she did this. Um, so she's won this, this big Nobel Prize as a high school student um, doing an apprenticeship with the University of uh, Illinois, I believe. Um, so really, these are awards for anyone of any age, which is oh. pretty cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so basically with this particular study, uh, she, in the lab area and where all of the staff are and things like that, she began swabbing one inch squares of floors in different uh, locations around the campus. And this also included high traffic areas. Uh, after that, she then purchased some smooth and some rough two inch tiles to kind of do some controls uh, and also to see whether the different surfaces would uh, allow for different transfer of bacteria from food or from the floor to the food. But the interesting thing is that her swabbing the one inch floors to try and find bacteria, they found literally nothing. They didn't find any bacteria at all. So. In one way, that kind of supports the five-second rule because nothing can transfer to food if it's not on the floor. Uh, so that was super interesting in itself, and that's why they kept on doing different studies about different um, textures of the floor and things like that, and also different kinds of food. So one of the other things that she also found out is she did a survey with a whole bunch of people to figure out which food people were more likely to pick up off the floor. And it turns out people are more likely to pick up sweets and cookies and gummy bears and all that kind of food rather than your cauliflower or your zucchini or things like that. I'm actually shocked by that. Really? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, you got me. Uh, yeah, so the, I guess the, what's the word? Niceness of the food, how much you want the food. It kind of predicts your your chances of picking Desirability, it up. Desirability, maybe. Or... Desirability, yeah. that's the word I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, yeah, so she, the, this study kind of looked at a whole bunch of different things as to why people would pick up certain foods as well as the actual transfer of bacteria. Uh, in terms of methods, she also used some... Uh, environmental scanning electron microscopy to look at the tiles, the different foods in that detail to see if the bacteria was actually there. Um, so overall, a very, very interesting study to, to look at. That's interesting. And I, I guess one thing that struck me when I was looking at the list of awards was that the, the researchers that are given these awards are not given those awards generally based on one piece of work. It's usually a few different 
pieces of work, like two or three maybe over a period of years. Yeah, exactly. So this one's a bit of a unique one in that she is a high school student or was at the time and it is only one piece of work. The other very interesting thing is it was never published. Right, okay. So it was on the uh, University of Illinois News Mm -hmm. and they're like apprenticeship information but it was never published. Only later on did other people kind of come in and be like, hang on, we need to actually publish this and see what's happening. So So it has been written up. and It has been been, but not by Gillian Clark, by a complete other group of people. Right. Yeah, so so I think she's very lucky, I guess, but also very smart person to figure out that this would be a great topic to, to study. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Sounds like uh, she's got a really high-impact piece of research at a very young age. That's right. <laughs> she should have published it. Yeah. That's the whole idea. <laughs> I'm curious. Do we know what's happened to Gillian Clark since this happened? Well, I can't seem to find any information about her at all. So, I, like, I tried. I tried to look up what she's doing, um, but... Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe she's listening. And if she, yeah, if she, she is, is contact us. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to know whether you've uh, <laughs> developed uh, or learned more about this five-second rule. Um, so there was a couple of other things as well that she found out, and that is that the majority of people know about this five-second rule uh, and that the history of this five-second rule started with Genghis Khan. Hmm. Not that I know how. It was something to do with him saying food can be left on the floor for 12 hours and then if it's been over 12 hours, you can't give it to me, something like that. Um, But it it started all the way back then. Uh, So most people know this five-second rule, but we're not really sure how it kind of came about in society. Uh, What she also found out is that university floors are remarkably clean from a microbial uh, standpoint, which is weird. So is it, does that give some credence to the, the saying, it's so clean you could eat off the floor? The I guess so. so. you can eat off it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's obviously university floors that are pioneering the way for that, that quote. Um, okay, so maybe yeah. we'll be doing without dining tables soon then. <laughs> we could just eat off the floor. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing that she did find is that if you do drop your food on the floor that does actually contain microorganisms, that food will be contaminated in five seconds or less. Okay. So unfortunately, unless you can analyse the floor of whatever you're eating off of, Mm -hmm. uh, you probably shouldn't be using this rule. So if we're at a picnic on the grass or somewhere, potentially this could be an issue. That's right, it could be. Um, But on that, I did have a look at the research that has actually been published for this particular area. And um, there was a paper called Residence Time and Food Contact Time Effects on Transfer of Salmonella from Tile, Wood and Carpet, testing the five-second rule. And this was done by Dawson, Ham, Cox, Black and Simmons. Uh, And although it wasn't a picnic setting, they tried different textures. So they had, as I said, they had uh, tile, wood and carpet. And essentially what they found is that the transfer of organisms from carpet took longer to the food than it did from tiles. So the more texture you've got on the the floor, the lower the rate of transfer within a short period of time. Over a long period of time, it kind of equals out. But carpet, five-second rule, slightly more valid. (laughs) Okay. And you might have maybe slightly longer than five seconds on a carpet, perhaps. Maybe, maybe. It hasn't been completely researched yet, so that's a area of research that needs to be done. Okay. Fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Good honour. Yeah, very good. 
Um, was that all you had for that that prize? I, I think so. Yeah? yeah, I think that's all I had for for Gillian Clark. So perhaps we can move on to another one, which is a food-related study as well, uh, which is one I had a look at, uh, which actually won the Medicine Prize this year. Oh, okay. And it came out of Italy. Um, it was research led by a guy called Silvano Gallus. Uh, and basically the, he won the award for collecting evidence that pizza might protect against illness and death. Yes. If, yep. And, but there's a caveat to that, if the pizza is made and eaten in Italy. Oh, so okay. what a shame. But what a what great reason to go to Italy. Yeah, Do you need perfect. any more excuses? Yeah. <laughs> um, so basically he, he conducted three studies as part of this um, body of work. Uh, one was looking at cancer, so as an outcome. Uh, one was looking at myocardial infarction, which you would know well as mm-hmm. a heart attack. <laughs> uh, and then the other one was um, gender-specific cancers like breast, ovarian and prostate cancers. And two out of the three studies actually found an effect. Um, the gender-specific one didn't really seem to have any evidence to support or um, or contra- contradict whether or not pizza was causative or protective. So just with regards to the, the first study about p- uh, pizza protecting against cancer, there were a number of cancers that were looked at, such as digest- like cancers involved with the digestive system, like the larynx and the colon and the esophagus. Um, and there were multiple case control studies that had collected data over a long period of time, and he used those, date, those data for this study. And they all involved participants self-reporting on their lifestyle factors, so smoking, eating, drinking, you know, sleep. The number of pizzas sort of they eat. Yeah, and pizza was a big part of the question um, that they got asked. Uh, and they, they split the people up into three groups, so the non-eaters, which... That they're the people who ate less than one portion of pizza a month. The occasional eaters who ate one to three portions of pizza per month. And the regular eaters who um, they ate at least one portion of pizza a week. Wow, so, that's a lot of pizza. Well, what's one portion though? Is that like two slices or something? Or the So the uh, article for this was very short. Yeah, it right. didn't go into great detail about how they... Um, determine what a portion was, but um, I, I imagine maybe a couple of slices. Or, yeah, well, you know. I think a standard serving of pizza, at least a, I think on the Domino's website, uh, it's two pieces as right. a standard serve. So. so, yeah, if you go to New York, then the standard serving is one, but yep. it's about the size of a whole pizza. Usually Might be different in Italy. One, one slice is massive. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, it, I think that's probably one of the big take-home messages here is that Italy is a very specific case and yeah. they have a very specific diet. <laughs> and um, anyway, so they found that pizza consumption was protective against colon, esophageal, oral and pharyngeal cancers, um, not so much some of the other ones that they looked at, like the rectal cancer. Um, and the, but they, they were trying to unpack this and understand what it meant because it kind of goes against what they found previously with other uh, foods that are complex carbohydrates, so bread and pasta in particular, that are usually a risk for colorectal cancer. And in trying to interpret the data, um, they basically have posed a hypothesis that there's a lot of other components to pizza. So mm. the, the complex carbohydrates is usually around 50% of pizza and the other 50% is things like cheese and tomato sauce and some vegetables and, you know, there's olive oil and stuff on a lot of Italian pizza. And so they think 
that possibly some of the ingredients like the tomatoes and the olive oil, which have had protective um, kind of, I guess, results against developing cancer, might be a factor in this, you know, the, these results that they found for this study. But obviously they can't say that with any great certainty <laughs> at this stage. Because It'd be difficult to determine. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. So that was interesting. Um, and then, yeah, so the next study that they looked at was the myocardial infarction, so heart attacks, and they looked at non-fatal heart attacks, basically. And so they had roughly 500 cases and controls in a hospital setting. That's not too bad. So people who had had a heart attack and those who didn't. And then they compared their pizza eating habits. And they tried to control for other things as well, but it's primarily their pizza eating habits. Um, and they found that... Uh, there was a protective factor against myocardial infarction based on the amount of pizza you ate. Imagine, imagine being in hospital, you've just had a heart attack and this researcher comes up to you and is like, can you tell me about your pizza habits, please? <laughs> like, that'd be very confusing. <laughs> it would be. I mean, you'd be pretty excited if they told you that you needed to eat more pizza oh, to, yeah. to avoid having another heart attack, but it would also be quite... That's quite a specific question, it you is, know, to jump yeah, to. Very interesting. Um, so yeah, once again, they found that uh, eating protect, yeah, pizza was protective, you know, in, in their rough kind of analyses. Um, and it's, but you know, they also hypothesised, as they were the same authors, that some ingredients might be responsible for that association or that effect. Uh, but they also went further and said that possibly, and they haven't done any more work into this yet because it's, it's all fairly recent. Um, in fact, these studies aren't recent, but I, I couldn't find any evidence of any further work in this area <laughs> specifically. Um, that eating pizza might be a proxy for having an Italian diet. And we do know that Italy's in the Mediterranean and places like Italy and France and Spain and Greece, we do know that the diet plays a big factor in, in life expectancy and the fact that there are some elements to the Mediterranean lifestyle that are not so healthy, like the high rates of smoking and whatnot and drinking a lot of wine, um, but they, that, that doesn't seem to translate to lower life expectancy. And they think that they call it, the, I think it's the French paradox or something like that. And they attribute that possibly to low stress levels and also the diet that's high in things like olive oil and um, legumes and tomatoes and you know fresh vegetables and whatnot. That's really interesting. So that yeah. could... So with pizza as a proxy, obviously not the pizza that we eat here in Australia. Very, yeah. very different to Italian yeah. pizza. Um, but so it acts as a proxy for the Mediterranean diet, um, which is something that has been researched quite a lot as yes. well. Um, so, and yeah, as you said, has so many benefits to our yeah. diet if we take that on. So yeah, that's super interesting. And I think, yeah, the, the, and I think you made a really important point there that the pizza that they eat in Italy I mean, you will find authentic pizza in places like Australia, but it's not the commercial chains, you know, that with the deep pan and the... You it's know, not Domino's, unfortunately. Yeah, it's not dripping in fat and whatnot. <laughs> usually it's usually quite thin and, and it has a lot of sort of vegetables and stuff on it. So, yeah, so I thought that was a pretty interesting study. And obviously my... And, yeah, lastly, there was one about the breast, ovarian, prostate cancers. Um, but the results from that, there was no associations reported either way. So it wasn't a risk and it wasn't protective against getting those cancers. Well, it makes sense that it might be more of the digestive cancers along that pathway yeah. rather than ovary or breast or things That's like that. That's right. You know, yeah, there's no evidence that pizza has an effect on your hormones. So, 
you know, essentially those things are very much linked with hormonal production. So, yeah, but I thought that was pretty interesting and, um, yeah, very exciting for pizza eaters. Absolutely. Yeah, especially yeah. those who want to visit Italy in the near future. And those with high portions as well. Yeah. More than once a week, more was than it? Once yeah. a week. More than once a week. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see if this award sheds any light onto this body of work and whether that produces, you know, inspires more research. Yeah, hopefully it does. I want to learn more about pizza and cancer. Yeah. Interesting. So anyway, before my tummy starts rumbling, um, <laughs> what else do you have for us, Courtney? So the second one that I was looking at, again, is a public health prize in 2014. And this one, not trying to give too much information away about myself, but it's very dear, dear to my heart because I own a cat uh, and I love my cat very much. And these researchers, I'm going to absolutely ruin their name. It, I think it's Jaroslav Flegger. We'll see if that's okay. correct or not, unsure. Uh, but they were investigating whether it is mentally hazardous for a human being to own a cat. And I don't think so. I don't like this research, but I clicked it and decided to read about it anyway. And essentially these guys have done a, a couple of different studies on uh, what happens when humans own a cat or different animals as well. Uh, and there's one particular one that I want to talk about, and that was describing the relationship between cat bites and human depression using data from an electronic health record. Hmm. So when you first read it, you, you really don't think there's going to be a link between cat bites and depression. Like that's a pretty crazy link to have, but... And it's also pretty funny and weird and strange. But the idea behind this study was not just to look at that relationship, but also to see how good data is when it's from an electronic health record. Because uh, people in research, when you're using health records and administrative data and things like that, you need to test the validity of the ICD codes um, or the, the codes that they use f uh, when you're recording hospital information to see whether it actually reflects real life. And this is something that they were testing when it comes to animal bites. So they wanted to also see whether they could determine the difference in those codes between cat bites and dog bites uh, and also other animal bites. Apparently people were being bitten by like parrots and snakes mm. and fish and all sorts of things. Um, but they wanted to look at the differences between those health records as well. So Yes, there's this very weird relationship they found, but it wasn't exactly the main message behind this paper. So essentially what they did was they identified all patients who were over the age of 18 uh, with one of 26 different possible codes for depression. Uh, again, something I think we need to know is depression is very difficult to identify within uh, administrative data. Uh, it can be quite difficult to code. So there's lots of different um, ways of, of coding it in this data, so you've got to pick up all, all of them. Um, and then they also use that data and different codes to identify patients that had non-venomous animal bites or injuries. From this cohort of patients that had both depression and an animal bite, they then conducted a chart review, so they literally went to their hospital records and figured out whether the doctor had written cat bite, dog bite, weird animal bite, something like that. And then 
did a whole bunch of statistical analysis, analysis to see whether they're correlated or not. Um, so the other thing as well that I found interesting is that they grouped it into four different categories of cat bites. One of them was bites from the recipient's own cat, bites from the cat of an acquaintance, such as a neighbour, bites uh, from a stray or feral cat and bites where the specific relationship was not mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) So they got into some detail. Did they explain why they did that? No, I have no idea why they did that. But but (laughs) maybe I think it, it might be to do with if you own a cat, maybe that's linked more to depression rather than being bitten by a stray cat. Right, okay. Yeah. So, so they you wanted can to see control the... for that relationship. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah okay. maybe something like that. Um, but I don't mm. think they specifically mentioned why they went into categories. <laughs> but obviously they had enough numbers to do that, otherwise yep. they wouldn't have. Uh, and, yeah, then they did a whole bunch of analysis to see whether that relationship was uh, in the data or not. And... As I just said, they did have a lot of people. They had 116,000 people in this study, one of the benefits of administrative data. Uh, And what they found was that the highest depression rate was for patients who had both a dog bite and a cat bite, with nearly half of these people having depression. Mm. Crazy. Yeah. Did they say the source of those bites, whether they were their own... Pet or? No. Right. So in the results, although they in the methods they looked at the the different categories in the results, um, not that I remember. I don't think they actually looked at the differences between them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but the other thing that was really interesting is that of all the patients that had depression, that also had a dog bite and a cat bite, they were all women, as well. Right. <laughs> so no men. I didn't realise that animals uh, discriminated that way. Yeah, apparently they do. Um, So that was kind of like one of their biggest findings, but they also found uh, one of the issues with that is that the number of patients with both of these was very low, so there's only 23 people with this particular case. Uh, Among all patients that had a cat bite, so there were 750 people that had uh, been bitten by a cat, Uh, 41% had a diagnosis of depression, which is significantly higher than the normal rate of depression, which was, uh, they reported as 8.8% in the general population. So you're looking at a huge increase in the rate of depression when they've been bitten by a cat compared to those who haven't. And and we we don't have any temporal data to tell us at what stage the depression came, whether it was before or after the cat bite, do we? No, so this is one of the issues is that from what I could see, this was actually more of a a cross-sectional study. It wasn't, like there was some time into it because I think they looked in their history to see whether they had a cat bite or not, Um, but you can't tell which one came first or or second. So this is another issue with this study is that it's not causal. You can't say if you've been bitten by a cat, you've got an increased chance of getting depression. It's not causal like that. It's it's very much an association. So it could be that people who have depression uh, are more likely to go and to have a cat. Exactly. Maybe to try and cheer them up. Exactly. And then that backfires because then the cat bites them. That's mm. right. Maybe they're just trying to love their cat too much and right. the cat gets a bit grumpy. Like yeah. There's so many other things that, that could be influencing it. But, yeah, so it's definitely we don't know if it's causal yeah. or not. So if you've been bitten by a cat... 
I can't tell you whether you're going to get depression or not. And I, th I think cats are pretty independent creatures as well. So if they sense that their owner's been a bit needy, maybe because they're depressed, maybe they'll, they'll lash out. That's right, exactly. We, we don't really know yeah. too much about it. Cat psychology um, is probably my next area, actually. <laughs> we can see whether it helps with um, prison health. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so a super interesting study. Some of the things that they said could be uh, future research is um, this being a part of screening procedures for depression. Now, it's very difficult to determine whether someone's going to get depression or not. It's, a, it's an area that, in reality, we actually don't know that much about. So one of their ideas was you could ask people whether they've been bitten by a cat or own a cat, um, and that would give them an increased risk of depression. But by reading this study... I think they're probably extrapolating a little bit. I don't know whether that should actually be a real thing or not. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So there was one last thing yeah. as well. Um, there's a, the other thing that they kind of talked about was that there was a, a parasite that lives in cats uh, and that parasite can be transferred to humans. Uh, so this is something I think has actually been in the news fairly recently within the past five years. Um, it's been on Sunday night, all that kind of stuff as this terrible parasite that we can get from our cats. Um, and they th think that maybe this particular parasite increases the chances of people getting uh, anxiety and depression and things like that over the long term. But in reality, again, there's actually been a lot of research on this area and it's real 50-50. Um, so again, if you own a cat, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. I seem to be okay, so... <laughs> I think it's important to emphasise that a lot of this is tongue-in-cheek. Yes, exactly, <laughs> um, exactly. Because uh, a lot would depend on the individual cat as well because I've just been re-watching a few episodes of Friends and I watched an episode where Rachel got this hairless cat in one of the episodes that just goes around biting everyone. It's really <laughs> aggressive and she's, she comes back oh, into dear. the room with scratches and bites all over her. And so, yeah, I, clearly yeah. there are a few limitations to this study. Yeah, there's, there's definitely some limitations, but it really does make you think. And recently the idea and the research behind pets as, an, as a companion and even pet psychology has been a real big growing field uh, and it's definitely something worth investigating. So I think this, although maybe there are too many limitations, it really makes you think. Yeah. about what we should be looking at. Yeah, and I think you could you could actually design a study to investigate some of those questions with the right information and if you asked the right questions and collected the right data. Exactly. I yeah. don't know whether a randomised controlled trial would be best because then we would be forcing people to get bitten by yeah. cats. But ethically, we ethically, might be, might yeah, be an issue. <laughs> may have a problem there. But, yeah, it does make you think, doesn't it? That's what these awards are supposed to do. Exactly. Yeah, how, how could it possibly be useful? All right, so I've got a couple of kind of brief studies that I that caught my eye for different reasons. Uh, one was uh, a 2018 winner of the Peace Prize in the ah. Ig Nobel Awards, um, and it was done in Spain and Colombia. And the reason it caught my eye is that the the one of the articles is entitled "Shouting and Cursing While Driving: Frequency, Reasons, Perceived Risk, and Punishment." And that was interesting to me because uh, I actually lived in Spain for a few years and the Spanish people are very laid back, very, very friendly and um, 
played back to the to a point of frustration actually because their favorite word is mañana which means tomorrow and so if you're ever trying to get anything done in spain if you're waiting for someone to come and hook up a phone line or turn on your internet or whatever it is they'll usually say mañana but mañana never comes so oh, it's just it's that tomorrow that sounds terrible yeah so it's good if you're on holiday which a lot of people go to spain for holidays and to retire and they're probably not in a great hurry um, but slightly different when you're there trying to work or just live a normal life. Trying to get things done. <laughs> yeah. But the one exception to that, them being so laid back, is what, the minute they get behind the wheel of a car, they could not be in more of a hurry and wow. frustrated. And but where angry. are they going? This, Everything else is being done tomorrow. <laughs> that's, that's a bit of research that hasn't been done yet. Yeah. So that needs to be done to find out where <laughs> Spanish drivers are going in such a hurry. And so I thought it was really interesting... Um, so basically, from what I could gather, because part of this study was actually published in Spanish, and so my, my Spanish is a little bit rusty, but I did read through and I couldn't find the full text anywhere online. But just from looking at the abstract and what was online, uh, it looked like they were interested in getting the perceptions of Spanish drivers as to what sorts of things caused them to, to shout and curse and get angry, and then how serious they think shouting and cursing and getting angry is when they're behind the wheel, how dangerous that is, whether that's a, a cause or not. Because there's been previous research done that shows that anger and, and shouting and cursing actually is correlated with causing accidents. So, yeah, which, I th you know, I don't think that's widely enough widely enough known. No, I um, think that's a very important to know, particularly in Australia as well. Yeah. We seem to have a lot of angry drivers. That's right. <laughs> I think everywhere in the world, but yeah, particularly in places like Australia and, and America, I've seen it, and um, in Spain. Um, so what came out of the, the questions that they asked participants was that most of the people would shout or curse at, a, at, at other drivers responding to illegal driving or dangerous driving where people were cutting in and out of traffic and potentially putting them in a dangerous position or forcing, you know, forcing them to take action to avoid an accident. Uh, and also stress, if the person had been stressed themselves and they were more likely to vent that stress by shouting at other drivers. <laughs> um, but interestingly, uh, most of the drivers perceive shouting as far less dangerous than things like drink driving and speeding. Uh, when, it, when they had to rate what's the most dangerous on a range of categories, Speeding and drink driving and, and um, going at an inappropriate speed were way up there. Okay. On well, the that, scale. that kind of makes sense, though. Yeah. So that's something that I think we get told a lot as well. Is it seems to be intuitive. Yeah. yeah. So we, I think a lot of us would say being impaired whilst you're driving, whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatever, tiredness exactly. is probably a big factor. And it, I think there's probably good evidence that that's the case. Um, and speeding the same. Um, I'd say you, you decrease your chances of being able to avoid an accident if you're going really fast. Um, but shouting was the lowest that they, that they said. So wow, that was the lowest okay. rated um, issue for accidents, right. which was interesting. It was, it was almost half of what they said for drink driving and speeding when they put it on a scale. So across the whole group this is. So obviously some individuals would have had it probably a bit higher. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was really interesting that, yeah. that it's a bit of a paradox that they engage in that behaviour, but they don't see it as being dangerous or... Yeah, that is really interesting because I, I like personally, I would feel that, you know, for example, if I'm getting yelled at by someone, um, I would make more 
stressed decisions. So I'm, I'm more likely to make a mistake if someone is yelling at me or, or being abusive or something like yeah. that. So I can, I can see that it, it would be quite dangerous. Um, so yeah, that's super interesting that they yeah. put it as, as last. Yeah. Oh, rough. Yeah. And so that's a 2017 study. So that's reasonably uh, recent. Oh, that is recent. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is good. Yeah. yeah that's so. super interesting. How many other things were being rated? Or was it just the four of them? I think there was six or seven. I didn't make a okay. list of all of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was, yeah, six or seven things that they got asked about as to how dangerous they thought they were in terms of causing accidents. So Interesting. Yeah. Did they give a reason? Why? Uh, I, they didn't publish that. If they, yeah. they may have, but they didn't publish it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So they may, they, well, they may have tried to interpret it, but as I said, the text was pretty limited and it was in Spanish. And yeah. Well, good on you for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that's it's actually again it's something that's a bit strange to research, but is necessary. And and driving behaviour is I know something that. Uh, in Western Australia, at least, we're publishing a lot on. Yeah. Um, we have the, the Driving Research Centre at, at UWA now. Yeah. Um, and we've got a number of people working on that. We'll probably behavior. get them on the podcast at some point. Yeah, yeah. that'd be pretty cool. They're a fairly new we addition to them, our school. Yeah, we can yeah. get them to comment on the Spanish paper, make them yeah. read Spanish. <laughs> Definitely. When, yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. You know, anger is one of those things that we can be, we can be um, taught how to control or how to deal with. Um, you know, through things like CBT, like cognitive behaviour therapy, etc. Um, so it's interesting that it comes up in a lot of research as a as a cause or a, a contributor, contributing factor to, to poor outcomes. Exactly. Yeah. And um, the, the other thing that I guess, like another question that's raised from this study is why for the Spanish population does it only occur when driving? <laughs> That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the other situations I would say that they do get a bit fired up, uh, one would be when watching the football. Ah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they do actually go crazy during football matches and, yeah, I've never seen anything like it. Yep. Um, I went to a, a, a famous football stadium called the New Camp, which is the Barcelona home ground. I think it can hold 100,000 people and I've never walked out of a place so deaf before after, then after a football game. Oh, yeah. yeah, so they're very passionate. Yeah, um, maybe they're just passionate about driving. Yeah, <laughs> I think they are. Well, there's a lot of uh, Formula One drivers oh, and of course. motorcycle riders that are competitive, like yeah. super competitive that come out of Spain. Uh, so they've got a proud history of driving quickly. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yep. Maybe we've just, we've solved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they all think that they're, they're Carlos Sainz or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, super interesting. And then as a sucker for punishment, I actually found another study or another prize given out in 2017 that yep. was also from Spain. Uh, fortunately, it was published in English. Oh, good. So that was helpful. Um, and it was research led by Marissa Topez Tejon. Uh, and it was basically the prize was given. It was an obstetrics category. Um, the prize was given for showing that a developing human fetus responds more strongly to music that is played electromechanically inside the mother's vagina than to music that is played electromechanically on the mother's belly. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> so I was drawn to this study because I have a keen interest in music. I've, I've played in bands and whatnot in the past, and I thought, wow, we can... Yeah. Really capitalise on this. Yeah, and see how music can contribute to 
you know, pre-birth yeah. antenatal development. Well, there's, there's been a lot of research done on, on whether you should expose, uh, I guess, unborn babies at that point to music. And I think it's quite common for people to put uh, earphones on, on the belly and play classical music is the one that I've heard is um, gets the best results, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting indeed. So there were three, 106 participants. So it was a pretty small study in this one. So these were pregnant mothers and they were randomised to one of three groups. So the first group was music played through the abdomen and I think it was either a speaker or a headphone that was mm -hmm. put on the stomach. There was music played intravaginally, which is a term that uh, I don't see every day. <laughs> um, so that there was a, apparently a custom-made device that was placed inside the vagina and the music was transmitted through that at a certain level. Uh, and those details are in the paper, but I can't remember off the top of my head how many decibels we're talking. And then there was uh, a third group that just had a 125 hertz vibration played in intravaginally. Ah, interesting, okay. Yeah, so it's just like a one, just one tone at a very low frequency to oh, see geez, if it was just the, the vibrations yeah. that was causing any changes. Um, so it was the music that was played intravaginally um, where the fetuses showed the most um, mouthing, so their mouth would move, and then tongue expulsion, sticking their tongue out. Um, and they, it was significantly higher than the other two groups. Um, and this increased as the fetus got older as well. So they did, they did look at different age um, groups, you know, how, how long the mother had been pregnant for. Um, so, yeah, basically what has come out of it is that it, it has implications for being able to test hearing in utero at a fairly early stages of pregnancy. So you could actually test for hearing um, deficits or, you know. That is so interesting. Yeah. Wow, because then you can basically start from when they're born um, coping mechanisms on yep. how to deal with not being able to hear. That's so interesting. Yeah. So it's not a uh, – this was a 2015 study, so it's not – Actually, I don't think the science has developed well enough for them to have a, a proper test yet to, to be able to provide that stimulus and then see what the, the reaction is. Um, but uh, they have patented a device for, I think it's for playing music through the, through the <laughs> women's vagina. Very good. Called the baby pod. Oh, oh God. All right. Yeah, so they've had that patented since September 2015. Uh, and yeah, it's a really kind of left field, off the wall sort of interesting yeah. study. That's some real like lateral thinking. Yeah. Um, and such a, again, sounds weird, but such a good idea and can, could possibly, if, you know, this develops further, could possibly be a real help to, uh, young families and things like that. Yeah. It could have a, a massive impact on on humans generally, if there's a bit more understanding and research um, that comes about, uh, because obviously everyone is born, and so that provides a, an opportunity for an intervention of some sort if you can come up with a product that helps to promote <laughs> facial if it expression is a or speaker inside of you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of mothers out there that will be hoping that this research stalls and doesn't go any further. <laughs> so I'm sure it's probably not the most comfortable Probably thing. not, but yeah. um, I, I mean, I, you are about to push a baby out of you, so. Yeah. Yeah. Argu arguably, there's enough trauma in that region just giving birth to a child. Yeah. You might not want to add to that in the, in the lead up. That's true, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, so that, that, that was uh, what I had as far as the studies go. Yeah, awesome. Um, I, I think what we've kind of talked about really highlights that science doesn't necessarily have to be serious. You can have an idea and research it and it could be amazing and interesting and lead to new pathways um, that could really help our society, but it doesn't mm. have to be serious all the time. Yeah, and I, I think I can probably flag a future podcast here looking at every year the BMJ does a Christmas issue where they uh, open it up to studies that are maybe a bit more humorous. They don't compromise on the me methodology of those studies, but they might be choosing a research question that's a bit, you know, off the wall or mm. whatever. So I think I, I read one a couple of years ago about uh, whether um, specialist doctors drank more coffee than nurses or something like right, that, yeah. you know, and it was that they went through and actually broke it down and used real data and, and analysed it properly and whatnot uh, and then came up with some kind of conclusions around what they found. Um, but, yeah, so that might be a good podcast for us to look at when that Christmas yeah. issue comes out later in the year. Yeah, I think so. That sounds yeah. like a good idea. Because I, I do think you can get a bit uh, fixated on the seriousness and yeah. the details sometimes and sometimes you do need to take a step back and, you know, have, take a have bit some of a light, fun. Yeah, be a bit lighthearted <laughs> about things. And yeah, exactly. Often some really serious and groundbreaking stuff does come out of people saying things and doing things in jest. Or even like accidental discoveries as well. Yeah. Like they're just having some fun messing around and they create something that revolutionises things. That's right. That's how innovation happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, do you have anything else, Courtney? Um, I think that's about it for this, this uh, session, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, it's... Been excellent talking to you about the Ig Nobel Awards. It's been so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I look forward to speaking to everybody during our next episode. That's right, yep. And if you want to contact us, you can uh, chat to us through Twitter on our um, Twitter handle at healthmeanswhat. And we've also got an email address, which is health at outlook.com. Yeah, I think it's just meaning of health at oh. outlook.com. I'll get it right off. one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, either of those two places, uh, and you can, you'll see that we follow the podcast on Twitter as well. So you, if you want to reach out to either of us individually, that's fine too. Uh, but thanks very much for listening. And thank you. We'll speak to you soon. Sounds good. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.